uh, should be familiar to you from the gospel. Um, the key idea, though, I think in this passage, he's identifying uh, the Antichrist or the, uh, use, it, use it plural, the Antichrist, and uh, describing then how to discern the false teaching of the Antichrist from an orthodox understanding. And he'll make this clear. He'll come back to this, you know, in 2.7 he says, those who do not, who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, or in 4.3, those who do not confess Jesus. Um, And these then are of the deceiver, the Antichrist. Uh, partly the problem here, you know, when we say Antichrist, um, do we mean just simply that uh, a teaching that is overtly over and against Christ, or is it a more subtle thing than that, that in fact displaces Christ, that it uses all the language, uses the uh, New Testament? And my understanding is that it's the latter that it's a false Christianity, that it's a false faith. Uh, And so the opponents undoubtedly believed in the Christ. And of course, Christos is the anointed one, and there is where the divinity of Christ would lie, clearly for them. But their understanding was that Christ in his divinity was not in flesh, but he revealed himself in knowing or in knowledge or in truth. Um, And so John here says, well, you know the truth. You've been uh, grounded in, you know, knowing. Uh, And so the the Gnostics supply the tag uh, because, uh, you know, Gnosis refers to this special knowledge. I'm going to call this, and uh, I'm going to give it a broader title, and just call it a disincarnate Christianity. Um, And I'm afraid that justification, salvation, predestination, you you can use all that language and you still hear people use it, uh, but if it's devoid, for example, justification, if Christ did not come in the flesh, then justification is a disincarnate justification. We still have that, right? We've done this with the idea of an imputed justification, an imputed righteousness that you get in Martin Luther. Well, the problem with that, it, it, justification has to do with social justice. Uh, the term salvation, obviously everybody can use that term, but if we're talking about a disincarnate Christ, it's a salvation devoid of the lived reality of new life in Christ, which is thematic for John. Uh, Even the term predestination is going to take on a different meaning in, and what I'm saying is that the disincarnate Christianity is always our tendency. Uh, The Gnostics are still with us, that this false teaching may be full-blown or there may be degrees of it, but in, a, in a, a disincarnate Christianity, predestination is, it rids itself of history entirely. That it's just, you know, individuals uh, called out and saved, their souls saved. Sovereignty, of course, becomes something very different. So, again, if we recognize that what is happening in the incarnation and death of Christ is going to address the human predicament, uh, then we can understand how the Antichrist is actually a return, and I'll argue this later, it's a return to a kind of idolatrous religion, um, that uh, it creates an alternative Christianity, which, like idolatry, is aimed at a kind of ahistorical, disincarnate understanding. So, Two things come together. I think this is very important, we shouldn't miss, that he's talking about this disincarnate Christianity that would be, I think, a non-apocalyptic Christianity. Why should those two things go together? 
the incarnation, death, and resurrection of, of Christ, and apocalypse. And of course, the idea is that with the resurrection of Christ, this is the beginning of the, the final age. This is certainly a Jewish understanding, but the idea is that uh, the time is imminent, that there is no age after this age. This is the, and so John is going to argue that. And this ties into the disincarnateness today, if you've got, does everybody know what post-millennialism is? The idea that, uh, you know, the millennial kingdom is one that is progressing and eventually Christ will return, uh, or premillennialism. The problem with either of these is they miss the idea that the church is the millennial kingdom. And the, that's what John means by we've entered into this final age. Jewish, for a Jew, resurrection is commencement of the final days. Resurrection means forgiveness of sins. Think of that. You know, we, those are not two things we necessarily put together normally. Why should resurrection imply forgiveness of sins? Because sin and death go Yeah, yeah, because for a Jew, the punishment for sin is death. Resurrection means sin is forgiven. So John's teaching then centers on, and I think that this is why I connect the epistles with Revelation, that the apocalypse is something that is very central throughout a Johannine understanding. Uh, and, and as we've said, it's, we get at this through a proper understanding of human death as central to sin and Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection as defeating sin and ushering in then the final age. Uh, and John is going to use the language here of abiding. It's right out of John, you know, the same language in John 14, the gospel, John 14 and 15. But he's going to talk about the Antichrist, and he's going to use the same word. They abide, but they abide in death. And it's the only time that he's going to link, use that language. Normally when he talks about abiding, it's abiding in Christ. And so I think we, we, are, we very much need the teaching of John, uh, like the rest of the New Testament, but especially because we live in a, a Christianity that is focused on rescuing people from you know, the world and going to heaven when they die. And it's all focused on uh, hereafter. And that's very Gnostic. That's what these, you know, they would say, oh, this world doesn't matter. All that matters is this other world. So the al alternative is a focus on social transformation exclusively. We don't want to go that way either, uh, which can, in a strange way, these two things often go hand in glove, but... So either a completely otherworldly or exclusively thisworldly are both guilty of not acknowledging the full humanity and deity of Christ. So think here of John's dualisms, you know, light and dark, life and death, lies and truth, and, uh, you know, above and below. Jesus crosses all those boundaries. He undoes those dualisms. And the reason he can do that is because he's fully God and fully man. And so John says, who's the liar? Well, he's the one who denies that Jesus, referring to the human, you know, is the Christ referring to the divinity. If you do not bring those two things together, humanity and deity in Christ, you're falling back into a dualism. And this is the Antichrist. So John says, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That is, if you deny this, you're denying both who, the, the idea of who God is uh, and who Christ is in reality. So the Father and the Son go together, the Christ and Jesus go together, you know, the God-man. Um, I think if we... I, I just take it that there's one 
Go ahead, Chris. No, no. I was going to ask you, what does it defeat again when you have the deity of Christ and the man of Christ? It, uh, my idea is that it's overcoming the Gnostic sensibility or an idolatrous sensibility uh, that the that deity is completely removed from humanity or of all the various dualisms. In other words, the man-God can be a kind of dualism. But in Christ, wait a minute, they're one and the same. Light, dark, <laughs> life, death. So once you overcome, and that's what John is working out in the Gospel, I think he's doing the same thing in the Epistles. He's showing how Christ crosses those bridges so that he shows the light is penetrating the darkness. Uh, that the darkness is constituted by precisely this false teaching that we're in, this idolatrous false teaching that is occurring among the Antichrist that, or the Gnostics. Um, when you get in, when you do a little philosophy, as some have, what you soon encounter in somebody like Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel is that. Uh, these dualities or this dialectic it describes the history of human thought it's just everywhere and so uh, it it is a picture I think of the way that human thought is constituted to my mind it accords with Genesis chapter 3 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil good and evil a kind of dualism a kind of closed system in which you displace God in and through the sign, you know, and human words are going to displace God's word. Does that does that get it, or am I just saying stuff? I don't know. <laughs> you are saying a lot of stuff, for sure. But I get the way you can experience this, in you know, a dualism is an antagonism, and so if you believe. I'm an I'm American, and you know there's them foreigners. Uh, those foreigners, they're completely foreign. They're backward. They're in the dark. They're ignorant. They're uh, they're you could just go on and on. And everything they're, you know, they're not. We are. So that what I'm describing is not just a philosophical understanding. I think it is our experience of other people. So the Antichrists are going to be marked by the hatred of people. They hate people. Uh, they'll exclude. They want to exclude people. Anybody that wants to be exclusive, anybody who wants to build walls of separation, which Paul refers to in Ephesians. I, there may be somebody else talking about walls of separation. but, uh, oh uh, but Too soon. <laughs> But Paul says that we've broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, so I just think that the, what will always characterize human systems of thought is antagonistic dualisms that exclude the other and separate out. And then you can express that. That can manifest itself in any number of ways. Am I getting closer to... Okay. So, lies and truth is the other thing here. John says, these people are liars. And, and my idea here is not just any lie, but it is the original lie. You won't die. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, in and through knowing, in and through a special gnosis, you will obtain being on the order of deity. So the Gnostics are doing what the devil said they could do. They would establish their ontology through their epistemology. But people... What does that mean? You say that, what does it mean? Ontology is being, the study of being. Epistemology is the study of knowing. You know, how do we know? And so epistemology, or knowing becomes a way of establishing being. So think here of Descartes' cogito. I think, I'm thinking, I'm knowing, I'm thinking, I'm knowing. 
therefore I am. His thinking, his knowing, leads to his being. So where is that happening here? The, the, the say it, Jake. It's in, well, the one's in the garden, so it's, don't eat that. Or God doesn't want you to eat that. You'll know knowledge of good yeah. and evil and be like him. Yeah, I get that. But what about this? And so these Antichrist people, they're, they're called Gnostics. And John keeps saying, you know, they're liars. They don't know. So they're claiming to have a special knowledge that would, in fact, save them. And that's, to, that's just what people always do. Oh, okay. So the fact that you have a knowledge results in your special relationship with God that's removed from other people. Other people, or and so knowledge here may, you know, the gnosis, you got to almost think of a Hebraic experiential. You know, they're taught, they're, they're not, I don't know that it's a secret, you know, I don't think, oh, here's the secret code, you know, 664395 or anything like that. Password. Uh, but it may be an extent, a kind of uh, ecstatic experience or existential experience that they know in a kind of seeing sort of fashion. Or they've had like a beatific vision. They've had a beatific vision. Got it. In this case, they're denying Christ. Yeah. You don't need Christ. Or the Spirit came on them in a Sunday worship service. There I go. Drum solo. Yeah. And they had an ecstatic experience that communed directly with God. I've seen Jesus, you know. Uh, well, if you've seen Jesus and you can access God through any other means than Christ, the historical incarnate Christ, then you have an avenue to God that bypasses Christ and therefore is the Antichrist. But also, wouldn't most people... I guess I'm thinking you can look from the outside and say you know Christianity is also Gnosticism I mean if Christianity or what you're saying is this knowledge if the knowledge that you need to know to be with God or saved or whatever is just the fact the only difference is between this special knowledge that could be anything or this special knowledge is specifically that Jesus is God and that he came and that he died for you and now you're saved if you believe that. That's still a knowledge. And John's saying that. He says you have true knowledge. But the character, the, the two knowledges would have different characteristics. Is that what you were going to say? Uh, the the one the the gnostic knowledge is one that they have individually and it's secret so it's all historical it is it it bridges in other words it presumes that the special knowledge is uh, outside of the body so it's all historical it's disembodied uh, this special knowledge does it not come by I mean, the ordinary means, and ordinary here, I mean, the way that Christ came, he spoke. You know, he walked around, he ate lunch with people. He said, pass the salt, you know, at the table. That's what you say. Uh Uh-oh. He was a man. And so they say, yeah, but all that's evil. All that, that man part, you know. And so in a Platonic understanding, the... God or the forms is absolutely transcendent and material world is evil. And so you don't need flesh. You don't need history. You have direct access to God. You're talking, we were talking I think on a Friday about that, about the difference between knowing in a seeing way versus a auditory way and how you have to experience God not like a experience but you have to be a part of it 
like I guess embodied is the only word. But you can only have that with each other. Yeah. And then yeah. have it also with God. Yeah, and that's what John's going to say. Abide. You know, abide in Christ. And if you abide in Christ, you abide in the Father and the Son. You know, in John fourteen fifteen, the abiding is a, a Trinitarian abiding. Here, are these what these Gnostics are going to do, they're going to abide in death. How do you do that? <clears throat> I mean... Uh, you know, you could take this as dismissive and say, well, they're just mistaken. But I, I take it quite literally that they imagine that, you know, what is death? Death is disembodiment. It's shuffling off this mortal coil. Uh, think here of Heidegger, you know, that I'm held out in death and I encounter authentic being. It's just more Gnosticism. <laughs> You know, it's just you just it's just everywhere. Now there are you know there are obviously details historically to this Gnosticism, but I think those sorts of characteristics are universal. So uh, it's static. You know, that's the visual and the auditory. The, the a vision of something is always static. It's not historical. So to identify Gnosticism. Generally, it's all historical and individualized? Yes. Yes. All historical, individualized. It's in your head. Oh, okay. That's why that, I, that, <laughs> that phrase just, that hits, it every, that, that hits everything. It's not just the folks, you know, it, it's just, uh, that's false teaching from, you know, the beginning. It's in, it's in your head. It's disembodied. So James is going to write against this. Paul is going to write against it. John is going to write against it. They'll all use a little different vocabulary. With James, you know, you cannot have faith apart from works. With Paul, it is that you join the body of Christ and you walk as Christ walked. With John, it is this idea that there is the... Uh, you know, the disincarnate Gnostic understanding. But they're all saying the same thing. And and it may be that they're encountering different heresies, but I think all these heresies share this tendency toward disincarnateness. So that you can, you know, literally in early Gnosticism, you can have orgies, sex orgies. But what you do with your body, that doesn't matter. Or like, you know, you can sell heroin and read the Bible. Somebody that we know. That that the faith and works uh, inside, outside, you know, all of these things, the uh, uh, body and soul, uh, heaven and earth, they all become dualisms. And that's what got, got Christ so come. Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, um, I think our traditional understanding is like coming from a Christian background or something, we think, of course not. Of course you can't have orgies. Of course you can't sell heroin. Thank you, you're a Christian. Um, because it's like there's there are some things that matter. There are certain actions that you shouldn't do, but the but the overall like loving your brother is like eh, eh. yeah you don't have to. <laughs> well, it depends. Is he white? Is he middle class? Is he going to yeah. uh, contribute? To, uh, I'm being facetious. Yeah. No, you're, yeah. <clears throat> that that we that who we would love is exclusive, uh, and so we just we, this 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 tendency is just everywhere, and it may be a hidden tendency. I always think this about the megachurch. I don't mean to pick on megachurches, but they tend to be racist. Just by the methodology, they're racist. Because church growth. How do you grow a church? Do you grow a church by having strange people come? Do you grow a church by going out and bringing in the homeless? 
you know, the cripple, the autistic, the mentally handicapped, they're going to hurt you when it comes to church growth. Uh, in fact, probably if you're going to have those people there, it'd be better to put them in a back room. Or just meet at a different time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Special yes. service. Yeah, special, special, you know, and we'll have our Hispanic service, we'll have our Anglo service. Uh, the church, as Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, it's the most segregated hour of the week. Mm. So, we got a problem. And we and, and what we the problem is we didn't we haven't got it. We haven't got the abiding, the loving of the neighbor. We're still hating the neighbor. You know, especially them neighbors who may practice a different religion or be from a different place or uh, surely they're not they don't belong here. They're gonna take our jobs. So would you say one of the biggest reasons that I don't know. We end up even teaching some form of narcissism in some way. It's just like maybe just ignorance as to what narcissism is in general or the history. Yeah, I think I think that uh, the. I mean, to put it in a uh, in an overly simplistic way, it's sin. Yeah. And sin always manifests itself in the same way. Uh, but but sin is not just a thing that we do individually. It's also this systemic thing that John's warning us about. Mm-hmm. That uh, the Antichrist, the darkness, the, no, it's all around. Uh, and it's in the church. Yeah. It's especially in the church, and that's what John's warning about. Be careful. These people are among you. And so he gave us the you know he gives us the clear test, the moral, the social, the theological tests that I've talked about. Do they do they hate people? Do they exclude people? Do they uh, love the brother? You know, love the neighbor? Do they believe that Jesus is Lord? Do they believe He came in the flesh? And uh, I, I suppose that again we can use all that language. Oh, I love my brother. You know, I love my neighbor. Uh, But the way that we tend to do it is that we imagine some people don't qualify. You know. Well, that's what people have done from ages past. You know, well, we are the people. That's every little tribe. You know, that's the Navajo. They say, we are the people. And I don't know what you are. We're the people. So what I'm describing is well-recognized. Feuerbach, Marx, Freud, they all identify the human alienation as the central problem. Now, they don't have an answer for it, but they, they say, yeah, this is what everybody's doing. Uh, Nietzsche even says, uh, this is our true predicament. Together with the fear of man, we have lost the love of man, the affirmation of man, the will to man. This is Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, even he gets it. So our lives, T.S. Eliot says, are mostly a constant evasion of ourselves and an evasion of the visible and sensible world. They're all saying the same thing, that we tend toward, you know, this is Freud's death, death drive in a sense. It is just disincarnate, in, in disincarnation. Uh, in the plague... Uh, uh, he used he, the phrase that do is do the doctor in the plague. It's harder to remain human than to leap beyond humanity. Our tendency is to leap beyond humanity. Well, wait a minute. Jesus became flesh. You know, Christ became flesh. So, excarnation. This is William Fraser. This word points, he, he used the word excarnation. This word points directly to the dynamic operative in man's refusal to be man. Carnal existence is punctuated with limitation, weakness, and pain. 
in a word, flesh is the dwelling place of death. And of course, that's ultimately what you're denying by denying the flesh. You're denying death, which is, that's Freud's death drive. More radically than anything else, the incarnation of, uh, of death explains the excarnation of man. That in our flight and fear and slavery to death, we deny it, and with it, deny the human condition. But it's precisely as a man that Christ has res- rescued us. I said I'd, I, I think that what the uh, Gnostics are doing is not really any different from what the idolaters are done, have done. And they're, they're, in a sense, they're continuing idolatry by other means. And let me explain this. You know, 1 Thessalonians, Paul sums up what is Christianity. Turning people from, you know, to God from idols. Uh, Idolatry is, I think, man's refusal to be man. Idolatry is the attempt to escape. Idolatry is the attempt to grasp an illusory exit from the land of death. And so Christianity, by definition, is iconoclastic, uh, meaning that it's, it's destructive of, it's over and against idolatry. Incarnation is iconoclasm. So resurrection grounds Christianity. I, I just did uh, Romans 13. I, uh, I interrupted myself. Resurrection grounds Christianity in an iconoclastic civil disobedience. What does that word mean? So an icon is an idol or image, and it's breaking of the image. It's breaking of that visual, static, Gnostic, idolatrous mode. So to iconoclastic, you know, breaking the idols. Where does that happen? I think that the Jews, first of all, were iconoclastic. You know, that's the whole, that's the story of the Old Testament, is that God is continually calling them out of idolatry. I mean, mean, just read the Old Testament. The tendency is always to return back to the idols. Why is that? Well, because the Gnostic, it's the same tendency. It's still with us to, to, to return to what the idolaters were doing. Uh, Christianity is the fulfillment of Jewish iconoclasm. It is the end point of... uh, Fraser says, idolatry is the most important concrete example of sin in the Bible. The evil of idolatry must be conceived in terms of alienation or excarnation. This is his word, I think. Man's balking before the human mystery, his refusal to be man. In his severe proscription of idol worship, the God of the Bible seems far more intent on defending his own prerogatives than on preventing any dehumanization the idolater might suffer in the process. Uh, the, The whole point of Judaism, fulfilled in Christ, is to displace religion of an idolatrous sort. And I would just say religion is of an idolatrous sort. It has an idolatrous tendency. And I'll I'll make that broad claim. I won't back it up tonight. But I think we could make that without qualification. Um, Idolatry does not pose a problem in the sense that the idol reduces God to a material form the idolater understands the idol as a visual aid to that which it represents. The sophisticated Hindu sees the multiplication of images as an unnecessary supplement to the understanding that God is absolutely transcendent. I've done this several times with you in different ways. To say I think we often misunderstand the problem in idolatry. The the problem of the idolater is not that he takes that which is transcendent and makes it imminent. God is imminent. He's imminent in the Old Testament. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day. 
he appears to Abraham and Moses and you know that's the story of the Old Testament but when he appears to Moses that's precisely when the children of Israel turned to idolatry they say Moses you go talk to God and then the golden calf emerges from the fire isn't that interesting but that's the the kind of meta narrative picture of what idolatry is it's a displacement of this suffocating presence of God it frees them from that in that it gets rid of God it's a displacement of God it puts God at a distance they don't want an imminent God Augustine's passage through a Manichaean materialism to Plotinus Neoplatonism points to the inherent dualism in idolatry and to an early Christian failure to account for the nature of this idolatry. The Jewish prohibition of idols was not aimed at reinforcing this dualism, but at undoing it. That is, the idolater is a dualist. He's saying God is in heaven and we're not. God is immaterial, we're material. And so there's these dualisms. Wait a minute, the whole history of Israel is is itself overcome, an overcoming of that idolatrous dualism that is fulfilled in Christ. This is actually Slavoj Žižek. uh, But it, it turns out that he is very pertinent here. The Jewish commandment which prohibits images of God is the obverse of the statement that relating to one's neighbor is the only terrain of religious practice, of where the divine dimension is present in our lives. No images of God does not point toward a Gnostic experience of the divine beyond our reality's divine, which is beyond any image. What is he saying? Interestingly, it takes the atheistic Marxist materialist to, under, to explain to us First John. He's saying the Gnostic would go vertical, and what John is saying, you go horizontal. You go to your neighbor. You neighbor love is where it's at. So, you know, that let, as for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Okay, I'll... Uh, have I done enough talking, Faith? <laughs> I can judge her face, and I can see exactly where I'm at. And I have no. It's okay. All right. No, she's not at all. I could. Uh, I. Uh, I'm on slide 13 out of uh, a total of you know. 37. <laughs> yeah. So I. 370. <laughs> your philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I uh, spell out, I think I've probably already spelled out enough, and that is that this anti-Christ religion is connected to idolatrous religion, and Christianity then is a fulfillment of Judaism in that here is the fulfillment of iconoclasm. And then I do a bit more with abiding and the importance of abiding this is significant in the gospel of john you know that what is the these people are not abiding except they're abiding in death but john is saying you abide in the body of christ and there is life Hmm. all right let's read the let's read a little bit from john children it is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Uh, it's an interesting thing. How, why do you know it's the last hour? Because the Antichrist come. Why would that make it the last hour? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I know either. But <laughs> because Christ is clearly ushering in the final age. Uh, what I thought here, and I've already said this, is that you know, with Soren Kierkegaard, he says that Christianity unleashes the demonic oh, yeah. in a radically new way. I think John's saying the same thing. We know it's the last hour because here's the possibility for an even more radical evil. 
In a sense, I think the this antichrist Gnostic religion is worse than the old idolatry because it's a perversion of the truth, the full truth, which is Christianity. And this is this is sort of dark, I guess, in saying that the church ushers in light, but with the light it ushers in a new power for blindness. And uh, that's my reading of this, that, that there is a... I use the word simulacra. I don't know that you need to know that word or that I even need to know that word. Other than the idea is that it, it takes all of the language, it takes the form, but it displaces it. I'm afraid that's what's happened in with these Antichrist people, but also with the modern tendencies toward Gnosticism. We've got the form of the religion, but it's all been displaced. There's nothing of the truth. There's nothing of power left of the, of the faith. Is that too dark, David? I think. Okay. David, you want to do the next one? Where are we at? They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now you can translate this or un and understand this in several ways. You know, a good Calvinist reads this and says, oh, they were never really Christians. I don't know that that's it. I don't, in other words, I think what it is that an authentic faith is one that abides in the fellowship and does not disfellowship, does not exclude. And by exclusion, by going out, by refusing, uh, they've, in a sense, they've refused the faith itself. The, what is the purpose of this whole thing? Well, the Gnostics have changed up the purpose. They've made it, you know, going to heaven when you die. Well, that's not these Gnostics, that's modern Gnostics. These Gnostics make it seeing God or, you know, a direct experience of God. Similar thing. So that, well, if it's, if it's just an, an exchange between you and God, I don't, you know, why do you need other people for that? The fellowship of the saints makes no difference. We can do a formal thing, you know, get together, sing a few hymns, pass some crackers, and... But koinonia fellowship uh, is as the very focus and purpose of Christianity is lost to the degree, to degree that we go turn to this Antichrist teaching. Maisie, you want to do the next one? I'm going back and forth. There's a pattern. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Go ahead and read the next one. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So he's talking about the anointing with the Holy Spirit, right? This is the this is John in the Gospel is going to talk about abiding in, you know, the Trinity, the Father, and you know, in the Son through the Spirit becomes. Uh, a place that we can abide and so the abiding though is not separate from the abiding among the saints the fellowship of the saints and abiding in God the Holy Spirit is the one who binds us together where's the Holy Spirit he's this gaseous element right here above my heart right well, in, in a sense, we, uh, I think that we encounter, we understand the, the Holy Spirit in the, the sense that we're bound together to one another. And apart from that unifying you know, fruit, think of the fruits of the Spirit, they're all binding fruits. They're all abiding fruits. They're not fruits that you can exercise by yourself in the woods. I guess you could, but it, you know, it doesn't, they, they make no sense. You can't love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. Yeah. 
So the Holy Spirit is key to understanding uh, the truth. And then these people... Uh, so I, I think John is contrasting their experience. You do know the truth. Uh, they're saying you don't know the truth. These Gnostics, they're saying, oh, you people, you, you don't have the special knowledge. John said, no, you have it. And the sign that you have it is that you abide with one another. And the sign that they don't have it is they're not abiding. Uh, they're lying. No lie is of the truth. So a liar is easy to spot in John's estimation. The liars are the ex those who exclude, those who deny, you know, the uh, Christ came in the flesh. The liar is uh, one who has become isolated and empty of fellowship by definition. And Chris, you want to do the next one? Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Jesus is the Christ. The man Jesus is the, you know, the picture there of the anointed one. The one anointed uh, as king, the one who they would most readily identify as God. These false teachers are not denying the divinity of Christ. They're denying the divinity of Jesus. They're splitting him. This is why I'm always uncomfortable, you know, with people saying, well, you know, go through this book and split out, divide out the human parts and the divine parts. I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing because the human is the divine and the divine is the human in Christ. I don't know that you can separate them out. And I don't, the idea is that, you know, when we did the picture of the image of God, the image is such that God can inhabit it in Christ and fulfill it. That is the enfleshed image. Uh... And, and, you know, I might point out here that John, like Paul, like the New Testament, like the Old Testament, equates sin and a lie. It's a lie. It's a deception. I think that is the, the universal picture of sin. All right, Jake, you want to do the next one? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Can you have the Father without the Son? That's the point, right? They're saying you can. They want to bypass the Son. They want to bypass the Incarnation. They want to bypass the historical Jesus. They want to go right to the beatific vision. They want to bypass the horizontal for the vertical. And there is no way to go vertical without going horizontal. This is the language I, I wrote a blog a while back, the National Missionary Convention. The title is Vertical. Uh, well, that's pretty poor, poor choice because actually vertical, by apart from the horizontal, uh, is, a, is a kind of false teaching. And the whole convention was on prayer. That is making prayer this vertical thing in which you exclude. Well, no, prayer is, is very much a embodied, you know, horizontal thing that we do together. Uh, Miguel, you want to do the next one? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you two will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So eternal life is a not just going to heaven when you die, but eternal life is connected to the abiding. Do you abide together? It's a quality of life that we have. Uh, you can be, around, be, be alive and not have this sort of quality of life. 
so it's a quality as well as you know uh, an enduring life because it does not dwell in death it dwells it's abiding in Christ which to is to abide in the very source of life all right we'll stop there mrs. Axton says and we'll take up we'll finish chapter 2 next time any comments questions at this point you should write your next book on John John's exciting isn't he yeah John is there's a lot there yeah I just always thought it was crazy that I didn't learn about abiding earlier in my Christianity like it's like I came upon it myself and was like what does this mean you know just in my own reading like it wasn't something that was emphasized right it's there, you know, in the gospel, and you remember the gospel of John. Is the word meno? Is that the the Greek? And it it occurs, you know, when Jesus uh, talks about, "I go to prepare a place for you, an abiding place, the many roomed mansion." Well, this uh, this abiding place, I don't think, is a nice building in the sky. I think it's the greater work that he talks about in that same passage that. The church, the redemptive work of Christ. So, throughout John, he uses that word. It's the same word, and unfortunately, I think we lose the power of the word because we don't get this is the new temple. He, when he goes into the temple, he talks about the household of God, and you know he begins to talk about the vi- abiding in the 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 Father through you know the Spirit. Same language all the way through, the, and also the vine and the branches same language in that sense John people say it's a very simple vocabulary but it's very profound when you get the different contexts that he's using that so the abiding is always an incarnate abiding the household of God abiding the family